Would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, will be the reading, or will be the subject of my reading, uh, as well as preaching this morning. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Let's pray. Now, Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word to our souls this morning. For we are creatures who are body and soul, and they are not so disconnected from one another, but we are body and soul as persons, as individuals. We pray, Lord, that you would not only minister to our soul, but minister to our body in the word of God for As our soul increases in the things of God and obeys the Lord, we are blessed physically, spiritually, mentally, cognitively. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us according to your word, that we might glorify God in word and thought. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus has been teaching. uh, He has been sharing uh, various things with his disciples and uh, there are Pharisees gathered around him, the Jewish religious individuals who who are leaders amongst that community and uh, they're there in the crowd and they have been scoffing and so Jesus has been issuing some rather harsh statements concerning them and he has made analogous representations of them uh, in the rich man and Lazarus in the previous section as well as uh, in the earlier portion of chapter 16, in the unrighteous manager, or the shrewd manager, or the unrighteous steward. He has been essentially teaching these individuals these things, saying these things, because they had various loves. They had things that they had embraced. They had embraced easy divorce. They had embraced the love of money. And they had embraced uh, various other teachings concerning uh, behavior within the believing community, uh, as well as easy remarriage. And uh, they were they were men whose ways were corrupting the crowds, uh, the very people of God. And Jesus, his intention is to uh, warn them concerning their behavior. And here in the passage this morning. He is warning them, his disciples, based upon their example, that woe unto them if they, in fact, in the course of their life, corrupt those around them whom they will teach. In similar manner to the Pharisees in the way that their teaching had corrupted Christ's people there in Israel. 
Now, this passage has relevance to us today as Christians because it answers some significant questions. And there are significant questions we would ask as Christians. Well, uh, as a Christian, what will my life be like? What will it look like? And and how will it and ought I to live as a Christian? What will I face in the course of ordinary days? And uh, what what will it involve if I'm to live as a Christian in a corrupt and dark place such as this world is described in the Word of God? And More than that, how am I supposed to relate to my fellow Christians? How should I, how may I, how can I live within the community in such a way that honors God's word, obeys the Lord, and uh, fulfills what he has commanded in his word? How ought I to relate to my fellow believers? And also, what, what will help me as I relate to my fellow believers? Because relating to, to other sinners is a, a very difficult task that often involves great challenges. As we care for one another, as we interact with one another, we find that, wow, I never knew it, but this person that is such an extraordinary saint whose, whose way of life I have so admired, they're a sinner just like me. So all of those questions, I think, are answered within this text, at least in some way. These are important questions for us as Christians. How am I supposed to live my life Godward, and how am I supposed to live my life uh, 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 within the church? And how, what am I supposed to draw upon for strength in doing so? So let's make three observations within the text here this morning based upon what the text says. The first of which is simply this. You will encounter stumbling blocks and temptations. Make certain that you are not the cause of them for others. That's the first uh, way. That's the first uh, command that Christ gives within this text that 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 directly answers some of those questions that we have been asking just a moment ago. You will, what, we've asked what will my what will the Christian life look like? What will it what will it involve? And and as I live as a Christian in the day to day. Uh, what what is that going to look like for me? Well, you'll encounter stumbling blocks. You'll encounter stumbling blocks. So make certain that you are not the cause of them. Now, he is saying this again to his disciples within the hearing of the Pharisees, and he's warning them that it would be better if a millstone were hung around uh, that person's neck who causes others to stumble, and if that individual were thrown into the sea, then they would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, I know Jesus uses the same statements, and that's not unusual. He uses similar statements in other places, echoing the same thrust of various teaching moments at other points in his ministry. And the same, there are overlaps. It's not unusual. Jesus has... Uh, a message to preach and to teach, and he illustrates in similar fashion. At another time, he will illustrate faith and the importance of faith growing up as a seed, as a mustard seed within the garden, bring, be, becoming a, a glorious tree whose birds benefit from its shade and, and its, its bountiful uh, foliage and fruit. But here he makes reference to a mulberry tree. And in similar fashion, he makes reference to little ones who might become offended or be caused to stumble. Now, in the passage in Matthew chapter 18 and Mark chapter 9, 
uh, there are references to Jesus when he says, as he's speaking to great crowds and his disciples, and he says he sees a child, a technon, which is a Greek word for a child. And he says, come, and the child comes, and he, he holds the child as it stands in front of him, and he points the child toward uh, those who are listening to him, towards his audience, and he says, you must become like this. Well, that's a different situation of, uh, and a different circumstance of teaching. Here in this passage, he is referring to little ones, which means those who are listening to him, new believers, young believers in Christ, immature uh, uh, Christians, those who are new to the faith. And he's saying that those who would mislead or cause to stumble, uh, these little ones, these precious ones, these new, young, immature believers, if in fact someone causes them to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck. Do you know what a millstone looks like? Here in New England, we have millstones often in city centers. They are very large, large stones. They can be very, quite large. And they have grooves cut into them, and they have a they have a square hole in the center. A piece of wood be, would be centered into that middle center, and that wood would be turned on a pulley system. And that one millstone would grind against a smooth or another rough surface, and it would grind mill and produce flour or some other form of of uh, of milled. Uh, matter resulting from the crushing of grain or corn. Jesus says it's better if that massive millstone weighing hundreds and hundreds of pounds, if not thousands, it would be better for that man if he causes one of Christ's little ones or young Christians to stumble. It would be better if he were, had a millstone tied around his neck and he were sunk in the deepest parts of the ocean. In other words, heaven itself will not fail to see when someone causes those who belong to Christ to stumble. Now, what are stumbling blocks? And I think that's an important question for us this morning. They, they are a snare, an offense, a scandal, <clears throat> something by way of description that causes someone to be inhibited in their in their following Jesus Christ in their in their relationship with God. Uh, Ezekiel 14:3 I think helps us here. Son of man, these men have set up in their uh, in their hearts their idols and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. So sin is a stumbling block and the practice of sin. So maybe what Jesus has in view here at the very least is men and women within the believing community it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and sunk into the depths of the ocean than that their continuing example of embrace of sin be shown to new believers such that it causes new believers, children of God in Christ Jesus, to observe their immoral behavior and be caught up in similar behaviors and sins. Another passage is in 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
There the subject is not sin, but rather the liberty that believers have with reference to things which some believers practice in sin or, or abstain from because of their conviction that it is sin or it produces sin within themselves. And yet, as believers, we understand, as more mature believers may understand, these certain things or substances or circumstances may not be sinful at all. And that they don't have an issue with struggling with that particular excess or sin. Some can drink alcohol without a single thought and will not come back to that alcohol for weeks or months uh, and can have one or two glasses and not really indulge any further. Others, a mere sip or suggestion will result in an excess and a, a sinful embrace. And so liberty and sin can cause stumbling blocks in the lives of others. Something that offends, something that's a temptation, something that is simply a metaphor or an obstacle of of being an obstacle to faith and faithfulness. And so the warning is against offenders here. Those who would embrace their own personal rights and not in any way have a concern for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Or those who have embraced sin, they have taken fire into their bosom and they think that their embrace of sin has no repercussions, no effect upon the larger body of Christ at all. Jesus says better, and this is a warning I think for, for dads and mums and their example in the home and whether or not they're using filthy coarse language whether or not they are watching things they ought not to watch that are filled with filled with expletives and, and all manner of filth, and whether or not their children are watching as they indulge in what their parents indulge in, whether or not mom and dad, as they drive home, gossip about every member of the church and how they tear people apart while building themselves up, that teaches your children. That's exactly what Christ has in view here, stumbling blocks that cause... Little ones, whether that's little children or young, immature believers. Stumbling blocks that, that lead little ones to depart from the Lord or to sin against God in grievous ways or be caught up in deep and abiding sin. Certainly the warning against offending others is present here, but, but ultimately the presence of stumbling blocks in the course of the Christian life is a test of our sincerity in, in our love for Jesus Christ. We will experience stumbling blocks. We will stumble over various things, and we will come up against things that might in fact almost bring us to the point of stumbling. Psalm 73 has a reference to this. The psalmist says, My feet almost slipped. I almost stumbled as he contemplated the fate of the wicked, as he thought about the wicked in the world, and he saw how much they had done, how, how they seemed to succeed. And it seems as if God is distant from and is unaware of the success of the wicked. He says, my feet almost, my foot almost slipped. But then I conceived of their way, of their end. Then he understood for a moment that one day they would stand before God and they would be judged. And that caused him to back away from that, as it were, slippery place. You will encounter stumbling blocks as Christians, whether that's other 
Christians and their embrace of sin, or whether that's other Christians and their embrace of their own liberties at your expense, or whether that's simply matters of faith and concerns of faith that actually bring us to a position where we question our very commitment to Jesus Christ and wonder about whether or not we are on the right path. Every temptation brings us into a position of inviting us one foot into the world, one small step out of the kingdom of God, stumbling blocks and scandalous things or temptations. Are we struggling with these things? Are they are how we respond to them an evidence of really true and genuine and abiding faith. Others who cause you to stumble, who are a constant presence in your life, what are you doing about them? Those who cause you to stumble and, and embrace sin afresh, what are you doing about these situations? We are told by Christ that we are to cut off our hands if our hand offends us. We are to gouge out our eye if our eye offends us. In other words, we are to take life, we are to make life-altering decisions about holiness such that we are so absolutely committed to living in a godly way. I'm not talking about mankind's rules about how how high our dresses should be and or how low our dresses should be or or, or, how, or, 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 or what kind of cars we should drive, or whether or not we should drive a wagon versus a, a black car without any ostentatiousness on it, or whether or not we drive a new car versus a new, uh, used car, or whether or not our home has a sound system or a television or any other sorts of things. We have odd and, and varying rules among churches in our world, but... what we're talking about are not the rules made by man, but we're talking about the Word of God. Everything that the word of God expressly commands or expressly prohibits. And as Christians, we are to be absolutely committed to living in God's way. We are to be committed to a life of holiness. So what are we doing with regard to those who cause us to stumble? When we come up against a rock of offense and we stumble or there is some scandalous sin that all of a sudden comes back to the fore and we have had some measurable victory over it in our life and here it comes, it floods right back into our thinking and we embrace sin anew. What are you doing to get these stumbling blocks out of your life and to walk away from such things? Evidence of life in Christ is simply that you will cast off all things that cause offense to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will work to cast off those things that offend the Lord, and you will embrace those individuals around you, the church that that you are a part of, and those situations and circumstances that will be conducive to a godly life. And if you won't do that, then you have every reason to question whether or not you are a believer. The Pharisees were misleading these little ones. And that's why Jesus says, be on your guard. In verse 3, be on your guard. Now, notice that he does not say, therefore, watch very carefully with telescopic eyesight and search deep down into the thoughts and motivations of your fellow believers. And make certain that you find intricately each and every one of their sins. And then tell them about them. He's not saying that. I think sometimes as Christians we 
We sometimes think that way. And to be honest, we've been, we've been speaking at Wednesday night Bible study about our telescopic sight, as it were. Whereas we, we tend to notice in the sins in others that we ourselves know that we are guilty of. And we judge them very harshly. This is an echo of 1 Timothy 4.16 when Paul writes to Timothy, his young protege, and says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. And then James 3, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. There's a warning for teachers and pastors and preachers and Also for parents and older Christians who are an example and mature believers and elders and leaders and believers and people who want their their lives to be a witness and married persons with unbelieving spouses and every single Christian. But especially ministers. Think about ministers and priests and church workers and their moral failures and their sexual sins and their financial sins. I find that so many are offended by sexual sin, and as well we should be. They should be utterly and completely removed from their pastoral ministry. There is no place for them to return to the pulpit. If they are guilty of sin, sexual sin, in the pulpit, in in essence they have been called into ministry and they have in some way committed sexual sin amongst their congregation, or outside during their ministry. They should be cut off from the ministry altogether. They are able to minister as part of the body of Christ, but they should not be in a position of leadership in the church. Not ever again. Somehow we believe in the evangelical church that we should forgive, and most certainly we should, but that forgiveness means forgetfulness. But there is an inherent weakness in the moral character of that individual. We should forgive, but we should also watch very carefully over the body of Christ. While these things are true, I also find that so many ignore the sin of financial sin. Of pastors and teachers and priests and ministers. I think it's just as ungodly to see a man in a pulpit somewhere living in million dollar homes riding in multi-million dollar jets. Don't be, don't be fooled by those who say that they must fly on an airplane by themselves, that they can't, as, as one large evangelical person, one large presence evangelical person has said, I can't fly in that tube of demons. What a foolish statement. It's good enough for me. I can ride in that tube of demons and share the gospel and, Show the light of Christ to men and women, boys and girls, as I fly on that airplane, wherever it seems to take me. The arrogance of those who would enrich themselves off the body of Christ. We should, I wish the church would wake up and remove those who are excessive in all of their appetites, who have enriched themselves at the expense of the church. The church does not exist for their enrichment. Whatever happened to ministers and pastors who who took seriously the call of God's word to come and take the call of Christ up to, 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 to ministry as a call to sacrifice and service? I think there are many in the church today who 
are pastoring churches who have made the ministry of the church all about themselves. They're not creating the kingdom of God. They are creating the kingdom of self. And so many churches are so willing to come along in the the same exercise of worship of personalities and of cult followings. Well, we must be determined never to be the cause of stumbling to others, nor to fall into that same that same pit of following those whose personality is somehow more important than the cause of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, are you causing others to be angry and to sin? Are we knowingly causing others to be tempted to do less for God as they observe our way of life? Are, are we teaching a lower commitment to God by our activity? Young women, are we, are we by, our beha- by your behavior, are you, are you encouraging your brothers in the Lord to be faithful and to be pure in their mind and heart? Young men, are you doing the same? Parents, by your way of life, are you teaching your children or are you a stumbling block to them by way of your conduct and your mouth and the decisions you make and the things in your home you have embraced? In the garbage you watch. <clears throat> Secondly, <clears throat> Jesus helps us in answering those questions. How must I live as a Christian? And how can I possibly live as a, this Christian life? And what will my Christian life be like? And etc., etc. The questions we've asked earlier. The second thing from this text we learn is that you'll need to rebuke sin to forgive sin in others. <clears throat> you will need to rebuke sin and to forgive sin in others. As he says this, he says, pay attention to yourself. We said that just a moment ago, but we'll reemphasize it in light of this second point. Pay careful attention to yourselves. The entire focus in this particular passage, in this exercise of repentance and forgiveness, it's on you. It's on me. It's on each of us, not, not the other person who has offended us, But it's on us as we think about the sins of other individuals and as we think about the necessity of their repentance. Christ's concern in this passage is about what we are thinking and how we approach that need. First and foremost, that we are under obligation to God to make certain that when we observe sins within the body of Christ that contradict God's word, now, again, we have to qualify this. We are not saying, and Christ is not saying, that you and I have every right to go and, and to make our, uh, our expectations for fellow believers known. In other words, you know, so-and-so, I, I think your, your dress uh, is just a little too high above the knee this morning. You need an extra couple of inches. That's not at all what's in view in this passage. I preached a sermon. This is very much what's on my mind this morning, as you can tell. But I preached a sermon down deep in the south while I was in seminary. And after I got done, this man had written to me about four legal-sized pages of the use of I and we and, uh, and, and me and ours. And it was extraordinary. He had written a, a vast portion of uh, during the entire sermon on, on my use of, of or my misuse of grammar or of at least two words anyway. Come to find out he had written another pastor a similar diatribe on the subject of the length of women's dresses. 
And so after he had, this pastor had gotten done preaching, this man walked up to him again with four pages of legal legal yellow manila uh, yellow paper on all on the his rules as he understood it on women and their makeup and their the the length of their dresses it was an extraordinary thing that he was saying and i don't think that has anything whatsoever to do with what that man or what i was preaching on any given sunday when that man wrote those things I do think the Lord has a concern about the length of dresses and why women wear what they wear, but also why men wear what they wear. And how much we are concerned not not to please God, but how much we are concerned with making certain that we attract other people and or whether or not others are attracted to us. There's a certain arrogance in all of us, I think, and a desire to be liked and admired, to be found attractive. But really, that's not what, what's in view here in this passage. Our expectations of other people, our, our bully pulpits, our expectations. What he has in view is the word of God and the call to follow Jesus Christ and the command to live for Christ and not for self. And so Jesus is saying here, pay attention to yourselves. But also, he is laying an obligation upon God's people that when we see sin exposed publicly or embraced publicly, or we become aware of it by way of ordinary conversations with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are under obligation before God and all of heaven to make certain that we we go to our brother or our sister in some way. And that rebuke, to use his word here in this passage, should be part of the Christian dialogue. The focus is on you and on me. Are we bold enough and will we rebuke sin in our brothers and sisters in Christ for their spiritual good? So that the church would not be corrupted by their embrace of sin? Let's say we go down and we have a coffee later and uh, we will have coffee fellowship after service. And you, you hear someone utter an expletive over their coffee. I would hope some of us or some one of us would go to them and say, you know, the Bible says we are not to use coarse language. I know what it's like. Coarse language comes up in my mind. I know what it's like to, to have used that and the impulse to make use of it. But, you know, dear brother or sister, we are to bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. You need to be aware of this. That's a kind thing to do. It's a gracious thing to do. There are many passages in Scripture that speak to this necessity. I give you a command, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Romans 12.10 Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Thessalonians 3 And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone just as we do for you. 1 Peter 1.22 Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, 
so that you show, see that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Ephesians 4.32 read this morning, and be kind to one another and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Philippians 2.4, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. You see, we are under obligation to one another, and we have an obligation under heaven to encourage one another in Christ, to be of the same mind, to have the same love, to be of one accord, and to look out not only for our own interests, but also the interests of others. Conscious recognition internally that our responses to and interactions with the sins of others is crucial to their spiritual progress. It's fundamentally a recognition that we have a personal responsibility one to another to love their soul to love mutually our Savior and to watch out carefully for each other. How many of us have been in, in a moment rebuked by a faithful brother or sister? And to us, it was, it was glorious. Many years ago, when I was a young deacon, there, was, uh, there were two elders that came to me and said, you know, We've noticed that the trash task, well, the way it worked was that if you were a new deacon, you were given the, the, the trash duties. And what that meant was that you had to pull out about 12 massive barrels that were plastic industrial containers every two weeks filled up with the trash of the church that got wretchedly disgusting, especially over the summer, was bee and fly covered, had snakes and all manner of creatures in there, especially skunks and raccoons. So when you went in to pull all those things out, You would encounter all of that, and you would get covered with all manner of filth. So I didn't really want to do it. It was not a welcome task. But somebody had to do it. I had grown just a little bit uh, unfaithful in doing it. And so two elders came and said, if you're faithful in a little, you would be entrusted with more. But your faithfulness in this task is indicative of your faithfulness to Jesus. And they were right. And I took it to, the, to heart. And I never neglected again even the menial tasks of ministry like that when I was served as a deacon. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? And according to what scripture says. And so we have an obligation to one another to encourage one another as the day draws near and to be certain that that we even, if there is sin in view, to rebuke. But there's a greater obligation as well to forgive. If he repents, to forgive him. Some harsh Christians who believe their spiritual gift is recognizing sins in others have not realized that they have a, a, a corresponding obligation that is even greater And that is to forgive each other as well. We really excel at that skill of noticing sins in other people. We can diagnose sin very, very easily. We're we're like people who Google their diseases online. And before you know it, after Googling for a few hours, they've got it all figured out. If you've got a symptom, they can tell you what your disease is. 
And it's laughable. We have such people in our home. Um, my beloved wife. If there have been a couple of times where I, I said, you know, I, I have a pain right here, and well, it turned out to be pretty minor. But before the end of the day, she had me convinced that I had angina and some other so, something that was going to kill me, some cardiac event just waiting, waiting to take off. And yet, in improving the next day or two, I realized that, you know, my wife is not a medical doctor. And as much as she thinks she knows, she may not know everything medically. Although she'll probably try to tell you during the coffee hour later that, yes, indeed, she does know more than the average doctor. But but that's all in fun. As Christians, we can diagnose sin and we can tell you why you've sinned. And, and we can tell each other uh, where that sin has come from and and what we think about, uh, what we think will be the, 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 antidote to that, the antidote to that sin and how best to deal with it. And we'll speak authoritatively over that subject. But, but then let someone come to you who has just offended you deeply. And then we'll have a very difficult time saying, yes, I do forgive you. And then watch it happen seven more or seven times in the course of a day. Are we still willing to forgive? Now, some have taken this passage to mean that if where it says, if he returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So the, the assumption is made, well, if this person doesn't return to me and say, I repent, then I'm not under obligation to forgive. I don't believe that that's the case. And, and simply, and I've struggled with this question for many years, but, and I know, dear friends, even R.C. Sproul himself has said, if someone doesn't come to you and ask for, for, for forgiveness, you're not under obligation to forgive them. I struggle with that, and I'm going to let J.C. Ryle, uh, with his answer anyway, and I'm going to let J.C. Ryle give us what I think to be a better answer. This expression is remarkable, he says. It doubtless cannot mean that we are not to forgive men unless they do repent. At this rate, there would be much bitterness constantly kept alive, but it does mean that when there is no repentance or regret for an injury done, that can be no renewal. There can be no renewal of cordial friendship or complete reconciliation between man and man or person and person. Seven times in the course of an entire day. Can you imagine if someone you loved offended you with the same sort of sin seven different times? Can you imagine? Let's just say you've had to re- re- receive someone who came to you in the last week. And you had to forgive them, a dear friend, maybe a spouse or a child. Let's say they they offended you in the same way seven times every single day. Would you forgive them? At some point, I think that our, our patience would run out and we'd say, look, I'm not thinking your repentance is sincere here. I don't think you understand the meaning of repentance. And yet, from the world's point of view, a sevenfold repetition of an offense is in one day would cast doubt on whether or not that person really understands and means their repentance. But that's not really a believer's concern. A believer's concern is to be about the work of forgiveness. And so if someone comes in sincerity, at least as much as we can tell, and doesn't ask for it laughingly or flippantly, but sincerely asks, will you please forgive me? 
we not only are willing, and certainly not begrudgingly, we are willing to forgive sin, but more than that, we are eager to forgive sin. And why do we forgive? Because Christ has forgiven us. Our business is forgiveness. Well, you might be asking this morning, in light of, in light of all of these things we've just said, how can a believer possibly do that? It's very difficult to forgive a fellow Christian. It's, it's awfully hard to take what we have been hurt by and to forgive in this way. How are we to experience freedom from crippling anger and bitterness and wounds that refuse to heal and words that are still raw, that are still going through our minds, the, the sins in others that make us feel so rejected, so ashamed, so humiliated, so deeply hurt? Well, the third and final thing in this passage is that we you will need faith. You will encounter stumbling blocks. You'll need to rebuke sin and to forgive sin in others. But you're going to need faith to do so. We need to have faith in God because we understand the character of God. And we, by nature of faith itself, we trust that God will give us the grace to do what He commands. And He does. He's an extraordinary God. Not only does He command, but He gives what He commands so that we... When, when we obey the Lord and we, 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 we fulfill what He has commanded, we, we acknowledge that He has granted it. Amen. And so we can pray in, in, in that similar way that St. Augustine did, or Augustine uh, did so long ago. Lord, grant that you should grant, that you should give what you command. Help me to do what you have commanded and grant itself what you have commanded me to do. We have faith in God because we know that we can hand over our hurts to him and he knows our hurts and he can empathize with us and sympathize with us and he will make all things right in the last great day. So we don't need to get retribution and we don't have a necessity for revenge because we love a God who forgives. The way that we go about doing this is we commit ourselves daily to love and to live a life for Jesus more than we love and live for ourselves. There's a mulberry tree that Jesus clearly has in his vision. And, and if he tells his disciples, if you have a mere mustard seed of faith, the smallest modicum or a measure of faith, the focus is on the supply of God himself. And he himself will give you grace and power to forgive. If you have enough faith, if you have the tiniest measure of faith, you could command a mulberry tree to turn over and expose its roots and be lifted up from the ground. And he's illustrating the principle that here these disciples, while depending completely upon grace of God and the power of God, could ask anything of the Lord if it agreed with his will. And God, by his very power, would do it. And certainly we see the disciples doing that, don't we? The apostles are doing that. And throughout the book of Acts, they're commanding sickness to leave an individual who's been ill for years. They're they rebuking evil spirits in the name of Jesus Christ, and they're responding instantly. From a distance, they're commanding th- individuals to be healed. The very handkerchief is able, from, from the body of Peter, is able to heal someone many miles away with whom it comes in contact. 
maybe you've been confronted by stumbling blocks. You've encountered the difficulty of watching over your brother or your sister in the Lord and, and how difficult it is to bring, to disturb the friendship, muddy the waters, blow wind on the waters and get things ruffled up and have to bring up an issue of sin. Some of us are terrified by that prospect. It's a very difficult thing to do. We don't know how our brother or sister is going to react. And we're very fearful about how, whether or not they're going to be so offended they'll leave the church or they'll cut us off out of their lives. But if they are God's child, even if they do respond with anger at first, they'll, they'll come around because God the Holy Spirit has a hold of their heart. And the Holy Spirit will bring conviction. At the same time, I need to pay close attention to myself and to rebuke and forgive sin and others. And this is nothing short of an extraordinary work that is far beyond me to do. I can't do these things. I can't keep close and careful watch over my own soul. I'm often blind to my own sins. And I, and, and, and I often, I think, put stumbling blocks in front of other people because I am a sinner. And I find it hard to forgive. And I'm scared about the work of rebuking. Maybe these are things you're saying this morning. The most wonderful thought in this entire passage is simply this. When you need these things, when you need to do these things, whether it is to back away from your own embrace of sin, or whether it is simply to watch carefully over your own life, or whether it means that you have to go and rebuke a brother or sister in the Lord, or you need to forgive someone who continues to offend you in the same way, Jesus will help you. Jesus will help you. If you depend and rely utterly upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe and trust that he will see you through, Jesus will help you. Jesus will help you because it was he and his sacrifice that affected the Father's forgiveness of our sin. He understands what it is to be offended. And he knows what it is to experience injustice. And he knows our weakness because he was fully man and fully God. Jesus will help you. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we give thanks to you for you. You we trust in this morning. We do not trust in our flesh. We cannot trust in mankind. We most assuredly are in great need of your help in the midst of all these things that we might do your will. And we desire to do your will. And in principle, we want to forgive because we have experienced your forgiveness, O God. But oh, how much we are utterly reliant upon your grace and power to forgive and a rebuke, and to watch carefully over ourselves, and to be careful that that we do not become a stumbling block to others as as we curtail our liberties for the sake of our weaker brothers or sisters in the Lord, and as we deal with our sins so that we might not offend the living God as well as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help us, give us your grace and your power to forgive.
and to love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.